You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. Listening to the BBC World Service. Multiple wars, uncountable refugees, mass rapes, children suffering, bombings, violence, terror, religious, ethnic, racial, national, personal. I despair for humanity. I wonder about God, if there is a God. How on earth could God be reconciled with massive, monstrous evil? I've heard the arguments why an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good God is not responsible for evil. Blame free will. Blame human nature. Blame the devil. Blame bad luck. But don't blame God. Why not? If God is really the creator, why not blame God? Is God responsible for evil? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. If I am a believer, evil is the evidence by which I should test my belief. And if I'm a non-believer, evil is the evidence by which I may affirm my non-belief. For theists... The problem of evil is to explain how the traditional God can coexist with the enormity of evil. For atheists, the argument from evil is to show how the reality of evil undermines the traditional God. Me, I've wavered over the years. Now, even as miseries mount, I'm ready for another go. I begin by giving the test of evil to a young theistic philosopher Rutgers, Dean Zimmerman. Dean, you believe in God, and if you can give me an argument with with why evil is necessary, I got to hear how you can defend why so much evil is so necessary. I can say something about why some evil might be necessary. We can see reasons why there would be some ignorance, some weakness of will, some pain and struggle, all of these things can serve purposes that you couldn't get without them. The, the question, why so much, is, I think, a different and much, much harder question. I've been through many struggles, and I've grown by them, so I can appreciate that those were necessary for character building, for courage, for uh, persistence, and all sorts of things. But those are not so much evil. But when you deal with evil, I mean, we can talk about children who die from uh, pain or torture uh, without any redemption whatsoever. I think anyone who believes in a good God who's behind this world has got to think that the world is much bigger than it appears to be. And in, in ways that we don't understand. Now, we can, maybe we can begin to, to grasp it by thinking about the fact that, that God suffers along with us. But I think ultimately that kind of suffering remains terribly mysterious and has to be counted as good reasons why people don't believe in God. 
For God to suffer if, if I'm suffering or if, when children die from cancers or tortures or war, it doesn't seem like an all-powerful God. It, it seems like a sympathetic God. Is that what the world is, or, or must you not have to postulate some sort of an afterlife in order to make the whole thing make sense? I would agree with that. Without an afterlife, we can't even begin to make sense of bad things that seem to happen with no... Uh, no payoff, so to speak. One thing that may help somewhat is that we can see how in our own lives very, very bad things can prove to be necessary for very, very good things. Developing genuinely moral virtues of courage, as you say, and, and, and so on. These are things that are developed in the course of trial and difficulty. And if God just gave them to us, it would be good, but it wouldn't, they, these wouldn't be distinctively moral virtues. Now, in the case of the, the child, if you believe in an afterlife, then just as the pain and suffering that I experience can play a role, something that I would not, in the end, wish away from my life. So perhaps the child who suffers at the hands of an evil person may ultimately in being able to forgive this person and understand that God suffers with them. This may ultimately not be something they would wish away from their life. People are gonna say, oh, that's just a pious hope. And I suppose that's, that's what it is, but it's a hope that I hold on to. I appreciate Dean's candor. He has a hope, not an answer. To honest theists, there's no facile answer to the problem of evil. More a sense that there's got to be more to this story and a realization or a rationalization that God must make a happy ending. But when faced with animal suffering, Dean hesitates. Animals are sentient creatures who live and die in a never-ending food chain of pain and suffering. When theists try to explain evil done to animals, they must deal with evolution. I ask a theistic philosopher who uses the Darwinian model for exploring science and religion, Holmes Ralston III. Holmes, if you believe God exists, why is life such a struggle, particularly in evolution, where you see an enormity of animal suffering, un countable billions of animals dying horrible deaths. Life is a struggle. One way I often phrase that is to think of a cruciform creation. And as I interpret evolutionary history, that struggle is creative. And you can't have the rich genesis of life on Earth without this struggle. You look at an animal, it has legs, ears, teeth, it has eyes. All of those features of life were created in the struggle for adapted fit. I don't think that in a world in which there's no challenge, there can be any creativity. So now I'm interpreting the struggle in evolutionary history as being 
creative and necessary for the genesis of life on earth as we know it. Why would I call that a cruciform creation? Well, when I read my scriptures, I can start with the Hebrew Bible. The name Israel means he who has struggled with God. So the idea is God's struggle with humans, humans struggling with God in Hebrew history is a prominent and central feature, and it's a creative dimension already in the Hebrew scriptures. And when we get to the Christian scriptures, Jesus' life is a struggle, and Jesus is creatively becoming God incarnate. God is struggling to bring about salvation on earth. Now, those kinds of struggle involve struggle against uh, moral evil, struggle against sin, if you like. But now when I look at life on earth, the larger process of creativity, you know, I see them both as, as struggling through to something higher, continuing in the religious life, but going on for millennia in evolutionary history. So I would like to think that the way of nature is the way of the cross. For explaining animal suffering, Holmes has two principles. The first is that creative development requires struggle. The second is a religion-specific Christology of struggle. But struggle and evil are not always linked. So, we have a stark choice. Either God does not exist and evil exists because it can exist, ours being the kind of suffering-laden world one should expect if there were no God, or God does exist and God's responsibility for monumental misery must be explained. I put the problem to a professor of moral theology at Villanova who deals with sin and forgiveness, Jesse Kuvenhoven. Jesse, if there is a God, is it possible that evil is not just something that, you know, has to be permitted because of free will, but is really necessary in a world that has this big picture that God wants? The first possibility that comes to mind for for people when uh, the question of evil is raised is the possibility that well, that's just a result of human beings making the choices that they're given to make. They have this option and they sort of are falling into evil and God lets that happen. I guess I'm more provoked by the possibility that God might consider evil necessary somehow to the overall goodness of this creation that he has, after all, decided to actualize. And so then the question is, what sorts of things could make evil on the whole positive in some way? I think one of the really intriguing possibilities here, just hinted at uh, over the course of the history of Christian thought, is the question of whether somehow it's good to be redeemed 
from something? Is that better than just kind of being pretty good or innocent all along or something like that? Is there something superior about having been raised out of the muck and mire? I think it's not unreasonable to say that God isn't really doing anything ultimately unfair to human beings if on the whole at the end there's something sort of positive about the shape of, of that life. Well, but a, the, a large number of people, that's not true. There are millions, uh, if not literally billions of people whose lives uh, go f start out bad, get worse, and then they die. Right. Do you need an afterlife uh, ultimately to justify the evil in the world? I think you, you do. I think it's hard to see how you could make that all work out if you didn't have some kind of conception of an afterlife where God makes things right. And is not God responsible for the individuals as well as the collective? If, if the, the traditional uh, conception that God is love is right, why would God just aggregate yeah. things? That's not what we think of as what a loving parent would do. And so I have the same intuition about God, that God would have to care for the good of each individual. So what we're saying for sure is that for evil to exist along alongside a real God, we need an afterlife. I mean, there's no getting around that. Yes. And if, if, uh, if I could uh, prove to you there's no afterlife, then you would have to conclude there is no God because of evil. Is that fair? I think that might be right. It's much harder for the theist to come up with explanations for what's going on with all the evil in the world if there isn't more to the story. To rationalize evil in a God-created world, Jesse needs an afterlife. I'd be shocked if he didn't. As for the benefits of evil, he suggests redemption. And the contrast between human evil and God's good would make God's ultimate reward even stronger and more appreciated. I worry about arguments that use ends to justify means especially when other means to achieve those same ends should be available to an all-powerful supreme being. So could God's reasons, however wondrous and ineffable, be sufficient to justify monstrous, unrelenting evils? I hear that New Zealand philosopher John Bishop thinks not. Good, a contrarian. I like contrarians about God and evil. Let's suppose that there is some unknown higher good for which terrible suffering um, of various kinds is necessary. Uh, or maybe that there are higher goods of a sort that we do know, but they're connected with evils in ways in which we can't comprehend. So that even an omnipotent God logically has to permit those evils in order to achieve these good things. Right. Let's accept that that's the case. I don't think that gives the theodicist, the person who is trying to defend God's justice in the face of evil, all that he or she wants. Mm. And this is the reason why. If you're thinking of God as an agent, then presumably God's goodness has to be the highest moral goodness. Mm. Well, what standards of, of moral goodness are we applying uh, in relation to which we say that God is perfectly good? Now, many people, including many theists, would say that it's a very doubtful moral principle that the end justifies the means. I mean, if you're a utilitarian, you may accept that kind of an ethic, but uh, most theists are very doubtful about utilitarian ethics. So you might well say, well, look, if God does permit evil for the sake of some unknown higher good, 
there's still a question about whether he could be perfectly just, because maybe the, the end, however good it is, doesn't justify the means. Mm. There are many sophisticated theodicies available, and a good example of this is that of Marilyn McCord Adams um, in her book, um, Horrendous Evils and the Goodness of God. And she recognizes that if God is truly good from an ethical point of view, then uh, he must be good to each creature and not merely uh, use that creature's suffering as, as a means to some higher good. And so she says that God defeats, he doesn't just outweigh evil, he defeats evil by bringing those who participate in, in evils not only the sufferers, but also the perpetrators, interestingly enough, into the joy of eternal relationship with him. Now, it's at this point um, that Ken Persick and I, who have collaborated together on this, come up with a further difficulty, which we think the theodicist needs to face and which we suspect will cause a real problem. That is, allow God um, as much ability to compensate as you like and, uh, and increase the wonder of the ultimate redemption, which justifies it all, um, as far as you like. Nevertheless, we think there will still be a problem in the kind of overall relationship that God will then have with his created persons, if we think of God as a person. Because if God really is the person who is the original creator of everything, then, he is the ultimate cause of all the suffering from which he eventually wonderfully redeems the sufferers, yes. right? Yes. And we say, oughtn't you to scratch your head a bit at that point and say, wouldn't God introduce a flaw into his overall relationship with his creatures if he is the one who ultimately caused the suffering from which they were redeemed? Now, of course, we, we concede that many of these sufferings will have occurred through the free acts of individual But human God beings. set up the system. But so God you... set up the system. That's right. So our view is... Uh, we call this a normatively relativized logical argument from evil because it'll only work if you have our kind of intuition that from the point of view of a relationship ethics, that relationship would not be perfect and so God would not be perfect. And we think that this is an argument for atheism with respect to that concept of God, but not necessarily for outright atheism because it may be just a way of showing that perhaps underlying all this discussion of theodicy, there's something wrong with our conception of God in the first place, a, a conception of God as a supernatural person um, who is really in control of everything, both the suffering and the ultimate redemption. Perhaps what we need to look for here is some alternative to that concept. John's provocative point is that even if God ultimately makes everyone come out all right, Still, because God created the whole system in the first place, God cannot escape culpability for evil. So, either the traditional God is all-powerful and all-good is flawed, or God is wholly responsible for evil. Either God does not exist, or God created evil. I relish the stark choice. Theists do not. Almost every theist protests divining complex solutions or defenses to the problem of evil. God must be protected, theists think, from being contaminated by evil. One theist, at least, thinks differently. 
the Emeritus Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford, Keith Ward. First of all, I want to be blunt and say God does create evil as well as good. I mean, God creates a universe in which evil is an integral part. By evil, I mean there is suffering, there is harm, there is death, there is grief. Uh, For you to say that God creates evil is really quite revolutionary. Well, I think it's uh, implicit in all the great theistic traditions. But if, if you're asking why, there's only one justification for God creating evil. That is, uh, quite simply, that God couldn't create a universe like this with people, beings like us in it, without creating evil. And, and it's the free will so that we have the ability to be... Independent it, agents. It is. It's not just free will, though. It's the whole evolutionary process itself, that we are the product of a very long evolutionary process in which um, there has been a process of random mutation and the elimination of those which didn't adapt to their environment. And that evolutionary process necessarily involves the extinction of millions and millions of individuals. We are beings who have lust and aggression as well as altruism and benevolence. Mm -hmm. and these are rooted in our nature. How did they get there? Well, over millions of years uh, in the past of evolutionary development. And people who think, well, the world could have been better and have us in it. I don't think they've thought that through. I mean, a better world would not have us in it. That's it. <laughs> so God might have created a better world, but the price of that for us is that we wouldn't even exist. Or what your definition of better is. If better is a smooth uniformity, uh, you know, I wouldn't define that as better. You could say that as well. I mean, there, although the amount of evil and suffering is often horrifying, it's, it's fairly easy to justify some suffering. Yes. And one could show, perhaps, to a certain extent, that a universe without the possibility of suffering and harm and death wouldn't actually be as worthwhile a universe. It's certainly not for creatures like us. I mean, this is where we fit, you might say. So that's the defence. I think it's a defence of inevitability, of necessity. If there are going to be beings like us, we have to have a universe with the suffering and death that exists in this universe. We've made it worse, of course, than it need have been. I think that's also important to say. Uh, this is where free will comes in, that human beings actually have made things much worse. Uh, for each other. Much worse than God than it, than, thought? Than God wanted them to. <laughs> uh, A so, subtle dis distinction, to be sure. Yeah, I would distinguish between what God wants and what God makes possible, so that God creates a world in which it's possible to do great evil to others. But God doesn't want you to do that. So not everything God creates is what God intends. Well, this sounds coherent for the scope of humanity. What about the individual, the child, the person who suffers, who gets killed, who is tortured? Are we subsuming the individual to the, to the species? Or is the individual important in some ultimate sense? Yeah, I think you have to say it's the individual who's important. And there's this great uh, Dostoevsky question about uh, is it worth uh, creating a world in which one innocent child is tortured and dies? Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a hard question, but the question presupposes that innocent child is a torch and died, and that's the end of it, really. Mm. But suppose you say you are that child and, and you die uh, in agony. And then, in a life beyond this, you are given an endless, overwhelming good. Then the question might be, would you, as the victim, consent 
to a universe like this. Given that, you couldn't have existed in any other universe. That's where you belong. But that means that an afterlife is absolutely essential. I think that's true. Otherwise, there is a logical incoherence between saying God is good and God is powerful and God creates this universe. God couldn't create a universe in which just evil triumphed. So it has to be not only God intends the good, condemns the evil, but that God will also compensate those who suffer evil by giving them endless good. For the problem of evil, I have only three possible solutions. Solution one, obvious to atheists, the enormity of evil contradicts an all-powerful, all-good creator. God cannot exist, and evil just is. Solution two, God does exist and does allow evil. Why? Perhaps for struggle, soul-making, redemption, God suffering with us. Who knows why? But God does not cause or require evil. Solution three, God created evil, is responsible for evil. When God actualized this world, God knew with certainty that evil would be part of it. If I were to believe in God, I'd go with solution three. For an almighty supreme being, I cannot see much daylight between God allows evil and God is responsible for evil. Depressed by that BBC report of the day's evils, I change radio stations and find myself immersed in Beethoven's piano sonata number 29, the Hammerklavier. If only for this wondrous piece of music, I think, our world is worth it. Not because music means more than evil, but because for music to exist may mean there is more to existence. I hope that's closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.